You're listening to a special guest speaker on the Calvary Brighton podcast. So picture this. It's 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus. At this point, the Israelites aren't even a nation yet. They're just a nomadic uh, family tribe just traveling around, and they're living in Egypt. They're in Egyptian captivity, and they've been in captivity for 400 years, 400 years. At the beginning, it was pretty peaceful between them and the Egyptians, but over time, things grew increasingly more and more hostile. The Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They forced them to do backbreaking labor. And eventually a decree was passed that ordered that all Israelite firstborn, newborn sons would be killed, would be massacred. Just when it seemed like things couldn't possibly get worse, God swooped in and miraculously saved the Israelites. He saved them from their oppressors. He saved them in powerful ways. He, he did at least 10 plagues on Egypt, each one more powerful and amazing than the last. He led them through the Red Sea by splitting it in two, and he led them through the desert with a pillar of fire. It was a mighty and powerful and miraculous story about how God moved and shaped and helped the Israelites get free from their captors. And they called, this, they called this holiday Passover. And the reason is, on the last and final plague that the Egyptians, uh, unle- that the God unleashed on the Egyptians, God killed all of the firstborn Egyptian sons, just as they had done to the Israelites. And so when he passed over each Egyptian house, all their firstborn sons, firstborn animals would die. But when he passed over an Israelite house, he spared them. And so because he passed over the Israelite houses, this holiday, which they celebrated every year, was called Passover. And they remembered the time that God miraculously and powerfully saved them from their oppressors and saved them from their captives. So fast forward a few hundred years later. The Israelites are a full-blown nation now. They're a nation of millions of people. And they've said, you know what? We're rejecting God. We're rejecting God as our king. And instead, we want a human king. We want a human, we want a man to lead us. We want a man to go out before us and fight our battles for us. We don't want God to do that anymore. So God grants their wish, but he doesn't do it without giving them a warning. He tells them that if them and their king, if they obey, if they obey God's commandments, if they stay faithful, then sure, he'll continue to bless them. But if they fall away, if they fall away from God, if they fall into sin and turn their backs on God and turn to worshiping other idols, then God's hands will be against them. God will, God will curse them and let them go into captivity once again. And so there's many kings that rise up, and some of them are better than, than others, but all of them just leave the Israelites wanting more. They, every single one of them in some way falls short, and king after king just leads the Israelites farther and farther and farther away from God and deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. God sent prophet after prophet saying, you need to stop this. Turn back to me. Turn from your sins. Repent. It's not too late. But they refused to listen. And they kept on getting deeper and deeper, deeper into sin and turning to these, these uh, idols and turning far away from the Lord. So finally, after the Israelites refused to repent, God says, all right, you forced my hand. And he allows them to be released back into captivity once again. But throughout all of this time, 
throughout the entire time that the Israelites were falling farther and farther and farther away from God, they were still celebrating Passover every year, every single year. So they're captured. They're captured by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They're in captivity. And what happens afterwards? Well, they, they don't go back to being a free nation. They actually go back into captivity again, this time to the Persians, and then next time to the Greeks, and then a time after that to the Romans. They've now been in captivity for hundreds of years to four different nations hundreds and hundreds of years, generations have been raised up and lived their entire lives not knowing anything else other than captivity. That was their life. And throughout all of this time, these hundreds of years of nonstop captivity, the Israelites still celebrated Passover every single year, remembering the time where their gracious and powerful God miraculously and powerfully saved them and saved their forefathers from their oppressors and from their captors. But as every Passover went on and they realized that they were still in captivity, they had to begin to face the harsh reality that at this point, Passover was all just a distant piece of history. It was just a distant memory. And it wasn't, it wasn't something that applied to them anymore. And so by the time that Jesus was on the scene, by the time that Jesus was born and Jesus began his ministry, the Israelites were in a constant state of denial. They were asking questions, questions about their faith, questions like, why are we still in captivity? Wasn't the Babylonian and the Assyrian captivities enough? Didn't we learn our lesson? Where was God? Where's this God that miraculously and powerfully freed our ancestors from their captors, but leaves us in the hands of the Romans? Has our God forgotten us? Where is this God that we celebrate every single Passover? And at the same time that they're wrestling with their faith and asking themselves all of these questions, the, Israelite, the, the Jews were anxiously looking forward and looking towards their coming Messiah, their promised Messiah. They would look to Old Testament prophets, like the prophet Zechariah, who promised that there would be a coming Messiah who would bring peace and who would save Jerusalem and that God would use to bring good to them. He gave them a prophecy of exactly what the Messiah would look like and what he would do when he arrived. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. And the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations and his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. They were waiting for this Messiah, the one who would free them and save them and save them from the Romans. This one that was coming, he was supposed to come on a donkey, the one that would restore them as right, rightfully as God's chosen people and God's chosen nation, just as it should be. Some like the Pharisees even believed that if they were just holy enough, if they followed the law closely enough, and if they followed the Torah uh, to every single, every single line, that maybe they could even get the Messiah to come sooner 
Others, like the Zealots, believed that if they wanted the Messiah to come sooner, they just had to start the war with the Romans themselves. Then the Messiah would come and then help them win. But others, like the Hellenists, they'd almost lost all hope that the Messiah would come at all. In fact, they've begun revoking their Jewish identities and their Jewish roots almost entirely. They began looking, living, talking, even eating like their Greco-Roman captors. But throughout all of this, all of these questions about their faith, questions why they were still in captivity, questions where their Messiah was, was and where was God in all of this, they still celebrated Passover every single year. And they were wondering every single year if God, the powerful God that freed their forefathers, would ever do the same for them. This is what the Jews were facing as we begin today's passage. So picking up in uh, chapter 21, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and on a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them in their put, them and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So this is known um, by theologians as Jesus' triumphal entry, his triumphal entry. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, rumors had been swirling for years that maybe he was the coming king. He was the promised Messiah. He was the Messiah promised by the prophet Zechariah. But at this point, Jesus had refused to let anyone call him their Messiah, refused to let anyone call, call him their king. He's refused to be re revered by those titles. And at this point, he hasn't even been in Jerusalem yet. And so in the eyes of the Jews, any claims that, or any rumors that he was the king and that he might be the Messiah lack substance. It would be the same as me saying, you know, I'm the president of the United States, but I spent all my time in Brighton, Colorado, and none of my time running the country in Washington, D.C. It just wouldn't make sense. They say, okay, great, you may be a miracle worker. People might call you the son of David, but we have to see it to believe it. Come to Jerusalem, then do it. And Jesus' entry into Jerusalem had actually been a long time coming. The tension between him and the Pharisees was at an all-time high. They had all-out hatred for him. They had even plans, and they had plotted to kill him at this point. And also, at the same time that the Pharisees were growing in hatred for Jesus, Jesus' growing fame was approaching national recognition. Almost everyone in Israel at this point heard of this miracle worker who's called the son of David this one who's preached amazing sermons and that might, who might be the Messiah. And so what does Jesus do? It's long anticipated that he's going to come to Jerusalem, but what does he do when he gets there? Well, he makes a statement, and he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, Jesus' use of a donkey was very intentional. He didn't need the donkey for transportation purposes. At this point, coming from Jericho, he's already walked 15 miles and has had as crossed a 3,000 feet of elevation gain. I don't think he needed a donkey for the last two miles. 
By riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus was intentionally and deliberately announcing to all of Jerusalem that he was the coming Messiah, that he was the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, that he was the king that they were waiting for. Now, during the week of Passover, Jerusalem normally had a, had a population of around 40,000 people. But during the week of Passover, the population ballooned to almost 300,000 people. There'd be people camped all around the outside of Jerusalem, and the city would just be full of excitement. Just full, it would be alive. There'd be feasts, there'd be parties. People would be drinking and having fun and, and eating food and feasting together. It was a celebration remembering the great time that God freed their ancestors from the Egyptians. But this year, Passover was yet another reminder that the, that the Jews were still in captivity and that God hadn't delivered them. And at this point, the event that they were remembering, the salvation from the Egyptians, that happened almost 2,000 years before this. That's like the same amount of time as us today and when Jesus had his earthly ministry. It's a long time ago. At this point, the historical event that they were celebrating was just that, a historical event and nothing more. So continuing in verse eight, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, just when the Jews were remembering the time that God saved their ancestors, but were wrestling with the fact that God hadn't freed them from their captivity, they looked up and there he was. It was Jesus of Nazareth riding on a donkey, just as Zechariah's prophecy said. It says in Zechariah, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. There he was. There was their coming king. There was the promised Messiah. There was the one who was promised all the way back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 49, which reads, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he who is to come, it, until he to come it belongs, shall come to the obedience of the, of the nations and the nation shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine and the colt to the choicest branch. God had remembered them at last. The prophecies had been fulfilled. The prophecies all the way back in Genesis, the prophecies of Zechariah, their patience wasn't in vain. Here was the one who was gonna save them. Save, he was the one who would deliver them from the Romans, deliver them from their captivity. Surely the same God who delivered their ancestors from the Egyptians was going to do it again. Their patience wasn't in vain. Their faithfulness wasn't in vain because their Messiah was here. Verse 8 says, The crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The crowd is roaring. They can hardly hold themselves back from crowning their new king. They, they're quoting, they're actually quoting a psalm. They're quoting Psalm 118, uh, verse 25, which reads, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
The word Hosanna is a phrase that means save now. And it's a word that's only reserved for royalty, for kings. They're saying, you are our king. You are the one who has come in the name of the Lord. You are the one who is going to save us at last. And they're preparing the way for their new king. They're preparing the way. They're placing their cloaks off their back and right on the, right on the ground for Jesus. And the significance of this is because back in the time of the kings, the, this is exactly what the Israelites did when King Jehu was crowned. And when King Jehu was crowned, he was crowned because he just overthrew the wicked King Ahab and wicked Jezebel. Surely their new king would free them from the wicked Romans. Surely. Then in John's gospel, it actually tells us that the branches that they're spreading before Jesus are actually palm branches. This is where we get the phrase Palm Sunday. And the reason that this is important is because palm branches were like a national Jewish symbol at this point. 200 years before Jesus' birth, during the Maccabean revolt, Israel, Israel gained independence over the Syrians by their Syrian overlords and oppressors. And they, how, what did they do to celebrate? They waved palm branches in the air. Ever since then, the palm branch memorialized how this kind of deliverance was possible again. They had this palm branch stamped on everything. Even their currency, their coins had this palm branch on it. And this is something that's easy for us to identify with. As Americans, we chant every Olympics, USA, USA. We have a flag. We have a holiday called Independence Day. All of these things memorialize how we gained independence over England. This is exactly what the palm branch memorialized for Israel and memorialized for the Jews. So where does their Messiah go? What does he do? Well, we continue on in verse 12, which reads, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. I mean, they were expecting, what, what is this? Why, why is he going to the temple? Why is he driving out the money changers and the dove sellers? This feels random. This feels weird. They, they would have expected him to gather his army, maybe, to muster the troops, gather an army for a battle against Rome. Or maybe he would have gone straight to the Romans himself and put them on notice and said, I'm the new king. You have no right to be here. Or maybe he would have had a speech that just rallies all of Israel together. That's not what he does. He goes straight to the temple and he starts driving out the money changers and the dove sellers. Like, picture this. Like, this is easy for you guys to identify with. You guys here, like, they, they were expecting someone who's brave and strong, somebody who could, was courageous and could lead them into battle. The reason that you guys can relate to this is like, you guys were coming into church today expecting the same thing, but instead, you got me. And so, like, remember this disappointment that you're feeling now, times 10. That is what the Jews were facing. Now, during this time, it's important to remember that the temple was the place where Jews went to honor God. It was where their, their relationship with God revolved around. This is where they could honor the Lord, worship the Lord, lament, repent, offer sacrifices to God. This was literally the epicenter of their relationship with the Lord. 
However, over time, the temple had devolved into just a place of business and greed. The money changers that Jesus drives out, that, that's referring to, like in the temple, in, during these times, if you wanted to go to the temple, if you wanted to make sacrifice or just participate in any other kind of temple activity, you literally had to pay a fee at the door to come in. What you would do is you would walk in, you'd exchange whatever money you had, whatever currency you had, and you would get the temple currency called the Tyranian shekel. And you would take your Tyranian shekels, and first thing you would do, of course, is pay the temple tax. And second, then you were able to purchase animals. And then once you pay the temple tax, then you could participate in temple activities. And then the those selling doves, who are these people? The doves at this time were the most affordable sacrifice available. It was a lot of times the only sacrifice that the poor could afford. So those selling doves oftentimes overcharged the poor. They knew that the poor had nowhere else to go. They didn't have any animals. They didn't have anything. They had nowhere else to go other than to buy doves from them. So they would overcharge them, like a lot. And so the temple court should have been a place where God literally geographically decided to dwell and people came to worship and honor and make sacrifices to him. But instead, it became a place where people were charged high temple taxes at the door and those who could only afford to honor God with a dove were taken advantage of. So what was their Messiah doing? Who is this Messiah? Who is this? He was supposed to wage war against the Romans, not start driving out the money collectors, the, the money changers and the dove sellers. Who is this? This isn't the Messiah that they hoped for. See, what the, Israel, the, what the Jews learned, or I guess failed to learn, they, they failed to learn three important things. One, the Messiah had come, but he fell short of their expectations. Jesus was about to set them free from their bondage to sin. But all they saw was a shameful blasphemer who fell short of who they thought the Messiah should be. They thought the Messiah should be a genie of a bottle, in a bottle, somebody who can meet their every wish, someone who could free them from the Romans, and someone who's a strong political leader. But instead they got this. They thought that their plans for them was better than anything else that God, that God had planned for them. After all, what could be better than them being saved from the Romans? What could possibly be better than that? The crowd was shouting, save now, Hosanna. And they didn't realize that Jesus was saving them, just not from the Romans. He was saving them from their sins. The second thing that they learned is that, yeah, the Messiah had come at last, but they didn't realize that the Messiah, the Messiah didn't come to wage a physical war, but a spiritual war. He didn't come to wage a physical war, but a spiritual war. The Jews were wondering if God had forgotten them because they were still captives to Rome. They're still in Roman captivity, but in reality, it was backwards. They had forgotten God and they weren't the ones in captivity. It was their hearts that were in captivity to greed and to sin. They wanted the Messiah to come and save them from the Romans, 
but they didn't know and they didn't realize that the real saving had to take place in their hearts. And the third thing that they failed to realize is that the Jews were not content with who Jesus actually was, with who the Messiah actually was. They wanted something more. They wanted something different. They wanted something else. They had set up a bunch of false assumptions in their head about God. They believed that if God was powerful, surely he would defeat them from the Romans. If God remembered them, then they wouldn't be in Roman captivity. If God loved them, then he would free them from the Romans, right? They didn't realize how far from the truth they actually were. When the Messiah actually came, he didn't come to fulfill any of that. They didn't realize that, yes, God was powerful, and yet he humbled himself and he died the death of a criminal. God did remember them, yet he sent his one and only son to die, that die so that the world may have salvation. God did love them, and he showed it by meeting their greatest need, not their greatest want. He met their greatest need, which was their spiritual depravity. So likewise, it's, uh, it's, it's, it would be good for us as we prepare our hearts for Easter, as we prepare our hearts for the rest of Holy Week, we need to learn and heed the, that we don't make the same mistakes that the Jews made. We need to learn three things as well. Number one, it's easy for us to believe that what we want for our lives is actually what's best. That our plan for our lives, what we think is what should happen next, is the best possible thing for us. We need to stop believing that because when, when sure enough, that doesn't happen, we get disappointed when God does something different. And we get confused and we get disappointed when God does something that we don't understand. By believing that our plan is the best thing that could possibly happen for our lives, we are stopping ourselves from seeing that God's plan is infinitely better than our own. The second thing we need to learn is that God is more concerned with winning our hearts than anything else, than anything else going on around us. He is more, his chief concern is winning the war that's waging for your soul. He desires pure worship and pure praise from our hearts. He doesn't desire hearts that serve two masters. And the third and last thing that we need to learn is that we need to remember that Jesus' sacrifice is enough. It's sufficient. Jesus' sacrifice and God's grace is sufficient for us. It's easy to just grow up and lump Jesus' sacrifice on the cross along with all the other stories from the Bible that we grew up listening to. It's like, oh, yep, Noah in the big boat, Moses in the Ten Commandments, Samson in his long hair, and Jesus on the cross. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has the power to save our souls and to save us from sin. We need to be content with Jesus' sacrifice and not ask God for more. Oh yeah, thanks Jesus for the, for the sacrifice. Thanks for forgiving me my sins, but actually I want this instead, or I want this too. No, Jesus' sacrifice is enough. We need to be overjoyed and content with what Jesus did for us. So as we go into Holy Week, and we prepare our hearts for Easter, we need, to, we need to let this text change our lives. We need to, one, we need to remember to trust in God's plan. And remember that God's plan is infinitely better 
Trust in God's plan. Two, we need to have wholly given our hearts to God. Completely given our hearts to God. And three, we need to be completely satisfied with the gift of salvation that we have through Jesus. The Jews said, Hosanna, save us, Jesus. Save us from the Romans. But we get to say, Hosanna, Jesus, save us from our sins. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, I, as we come before you and we prepare our hearts to just remember your sacrifice, Lord, remember that your sacrifice on the cross, I pray that we just never, ever, ever forget how truly important that is, Lord. I pray that we don't grow tired of hearing, hearing what you did on the cross every, every year, Lord, but we, just rem- we are constantly overjoyed and completely satisfied in you, Lord. Lord, I pray that we become people who trust in God's plan trust in God's plan completely, that we give up our own plans for our lives and we put our whole faith into yours, Lord. I pray that we are become people that have wholly and completely given our hearts to you, that we're people that don't have our hearts given to multiple things, Lord, but that our hearts and all that we are is completely yours. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of salvation that you've given us through, through Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.